to read from John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I, <coughs> that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, when, uh, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness 
because you have been with me from the beginning. John 16, 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Holy Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority... But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I uh, encourage you to follow the skeleton outline that's in the care link. Uh, it's uh, not just because it took hours to prepare, <laughs> but um, uh, it'll help keep you on track and realise that there is uh, uh, order in this seemingly uh, chaotic passage or set of passages. We have the context here uh, of Jesus having finished his public ministry, now moving at this time of Passover to focus purely upon teaching the disciples. It's preparatory preaching and teaching. It's pastoral preaching and teaching. Jesus cares that they don't know what's about to happen and they don't understand why this Passover is significant. They don't know where he is going. They don't understand the cross. That's not part of their uh, understanding of his ministry. They think that things are going swimmingly. They've just had the triumphal entry. Finally, Christ is getting the pulling power that he deserves. And they're expecting better things ahead. So Jesus has to let them down. And this is a passage or a set of passages, I'm skipping chapter 13 for time, that really is saying... What Jesus wants his disciples to understand, which is critical about the next stage of human history into which they're about to enter. Now, I, when I was a son, if my mother was leaving the house in my care, I learnt very quickly that the last thing she said was meant to be abided by. I was meant to take that on board and whatever else I forgot, the last thing she said was what I should do. Whether it's feed the cat, whether it's not feed the cat, whether you have a cat or not, <laughs> 
you still have to abide by the last instruction. So when Jesus spends three chapters in this book and we've looked at so many momentous signs and then we come to three, four chapters in fact, if you count chapter 17, where he instructs the disciples. Three of them are instruction and one is a prayer. It's his best shot. It's his last word. If you forget everything, you don't forget this. And there are two things that he majors on through these three chapters. One is that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. I wish we had time to deal with that issue. There are some parts of the world today that don't need to be taught that. While we worship today, probably another dozen churches will be closed in Myanmar and their pastors arrested. They need those chapters, as do we, to understand the normal Christian life. I want to focus today on what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. Now, it's sad that this issue has been a cause of such angst and division. Back in my father's day and my grandfather's day, people used to argue, of all things, about ridiculous ideas of the second coming. And volumes and literature was spilt on that. Who was the beast? Was it Russia? Was it Stalin? Was it the World Council of Churches? It was purely theoretical. Sadly, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has taken that place. And I think that's largely because where there is ignorance, ignorance abhors a vacuum, and uh, there are always some people for whom religion is an opportunity to dominate other people by creating within them a sense that they're ignorant, that they're lacking something. So we're going to finish today with a little checklist where you'll be able to tick off whether you lack anything. Because if you have a confidence that you have all you can have when you have Jesus Christ as Lord, then you'll be impervious to those charlatans who like to make money out of Christian inferiority. Let's look at this passage or passages. Jesus is preparing for his uh, departure. He's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm, you know, and he can sense that they're uneasy about some of the things that he's been saying to them. And he talks about going to prepare a way for them. And then he just drops it into the conversation. Um, no one comes to the Father by, but by me, which makes him think tangentially. If you'd known me, chapter verse 7, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and you've seen him. At which point Philip goes, huh? What is this? And Philip, uh, it is, who says, show us the Father. Philip's saying, if only I could have a beatific vision of the Father. Oh, yes, I'll give me two. <laughs> I'll take that. And uh, Jesus is exasperated. <laughs> and he said, and here his words exactly, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father, the Father is in me? 
This is an incredible paradigm shift in Judaism and Judaistic spirituality. The coin has not dropped in their consciousness that Jesus is Lord, that there is no Lord behind Jesus. The Father and Jesus are distinct and yet you will know all you can about the Father when you know Jesus. This is really what the doctrine of the Trinity that the church developed grew out of sentences just like this. This is actually the doctrine which I don't think I've ever heard the word in church more, more uh, sad as uh, that is a sadness. The word interpenetration. It's not a hard word to say. The Greeks had a word perichoresis which said the same thing or mutual indwelling. And that is the notion that whenever you focus upon one of the persons of the Trinity, the other two come along for the ride, as it were. Though you are looking at the work of one of the persons, you cannot detach that work from the presence of the others. They are interpenetrated into that work. The work of creation. God the Son is involved in that. He upholds this world that we live in. And the Spirit is the one who energises that act. Work of salvation is exactly the same. The three persons are always present, though one is doing their proper work, a particular one. It's difficult to get your head around, but it's critical that you do. Everything that you experience or expect in the Christian life comes out of this doctrine. How come we haven't mentioned this word? Jesus says, if you'd known me, you'd know my father. How come you don't realise now that the one you're looking at is the God of Israel? The father of Israel. The God, God who is the first person of the Trinity. Obviously they haven't got that model yet. And then he moves on and he talks about what they're to expect in his absence. He's trying to get across, I'm leaving. But it's actually better that I leave. This is not a tragic story that is ending badly. This is a story we're coming to the climax. This is what it was all about. And my leaving is the critical moment in this story. Jesus jumps, we jump down to uh, uh, verse 15 and he's saying, just like the mother who leaves the son at home, he is saying, I'm leaving but I'm not leaving you without preparations. The dinner is in the oven. I've been to the shops, the fridge is full. It's that sort of thing that's happening here. And Jesus is saying... In verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In fact, that's the essence of Christianity. It's to obey Jesus. To trust and obey, for there is no other way. You do that, you're doing fine. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, there are three ways that the Holy Spirit is spoken of in this set of texts this couple of passages that we're looking at this morning are the densest teaching on the holy spirit in the new testament 
you don't get richer and deeper teaching than in just these few verses. If you have any interest at all in an authentic spiritual experience, these next few moments are critical for your confidence. If you've got not too much interest, get back to the phone. But here, these are dynamite in terms of understanding our God and how to live with him. First of all, Jesus points out that he's not going to leave them totally on their own. He's going to ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Now this word helper is, uh, is an interesting word. It's the Greek word that you have there, parakletos. And it's really, literally, one who calls beside an encourager, but its context where it was used most often was in the court. This is like the advocate or the barrister, the one who speaks on your behalf. If we're to fundamentally understand why God gives us the Holy Spirit, it's to break through our own lack of confidence before God. That we have one that is going to be given to us who put in a good word for you where it really counts before the consciousness of the mind of God. That's a phenomenal thing. God has created and made salvation history in such a way that you will have one who will come to you who will do your bidding before God. And this one is called the Advocate. He is called the Spirit of Truth. It speaks of his character, his reputation as immaculate. The one who is doing your bidding will have God's ear because God knows this one is truth itself. That is the very character of God. He cannot tolerate shadowy dealing. He cannot tolerate dishonesty. Any sort of Christian spirituality that bends the truth for the sake of the gospel is not the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need that sort of help. The spirit of truth is the essential character of this spirit, is truth. And later on in verse 26, we see he's called the Holy Spirit, the advocate. Same one. The advocate is called the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating we could easily gloss over one, an important little word, is the word another. There are two words in the language of the New Testament that could have been used that mean another. But the one that is used here means another of the same kind. So Jesus is going to leave, but he's going to give us another helper that is of the same kind as myself. A teacher, an advocate, one who is going to come alongside that will bear my characteristics of the same kind. So a sort of Christian spirituality that speaks of God has done Christ, but now he's doing a new thing, you've got to be wary of that. The Spirit is of the same kind as Jesus Christ. He will never act out of character with Jesus Christ. He will never be out of step with Jesus Christ. He will never do another ministry that doesn't have the whiff of Jesus about it. And that's how you can tell whether it's truth or just human invention. 
And he says, I will ask the Father and he will send this one. Later in the passage, you'll read that he'll say, I will send him. So Father and Son are both involved in sending forth this spirit which we now have. You notice there is nowhere where we are told here, and these are the most important words of Jesus for as he departs, where he says, you will ask the Father for the Spirit. The New Testament never commands us to ask for the Holy Spirit or his gifts. Any teaching that says that, that's really human invention. This is a decision made by the Father and Jesus Christ on our behalf. And he does that. Beware. Now that's the person of the Spirit. He is another advocate. He bears the characteristics of Jesus. He bears the characteristics of truth. He is the essence of holiness. That is his abiding concern. It is his character. It's characteristic of Jesus and it's characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Let's now look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, he says, and these are all these little P's that you see in your notes there. Uh, He'll say, I'll give you another helper to be with you forever. A Christian view of the Holy Spirit, a biblical view, the view that Jesus Christ had, is that the Spirit is permanent. When he comes, he abides forever. It's a done deal. He doesn't come just like in the Old Testament at a point of crisis and come upon a prophet or a king or or an architect as he needs to make a temple. When the Holy Spirit comes, this is the new paradigm which we have, which no one up to now, up to this point, ever had. We have a spirit who, when he comes into your life, he's there for keeps. He takes the title deeds out of our hands and inhabits that residence. Don't ever think we should never pray as the psalmist prayed, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That is not a Christian prayer. That's an Old Testament prayer. That's the critical difference. When the Holy Spirit comes into a Christian, we never have to worry that the Holy Spirit is going to leave. And if he never leaves, then we never have to ask for a refill. Because he's not gone. He's come to abide. He will be with you forever. If someone tells you other, they have an authority which is contradictory to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the expert on the Spirit. He's the one who has lived for eternity like that with the Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ. If you want anyone's opinion, look at this. This opinion counts. To be with you forever. And then he says, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor doesn't discern him, it doesn't know him. So this gift of the Spirit is not something, it is something permanent, it's also something particular, the second P. It's particular to the saint, to the believer. He's not constitutional in all people. It's not the human spirit we're talking about here. That's the difference between the trash that you read in the, in the bookshops on spirituality and the Bible. 
is because they're they are talking about something which humans do. This is something which humans can't do. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence within us. The world cannot receive him. They'll talk about spirituality. In fact, in my area of uh, organisational studies, nearly 30% of all research that's done today in organisational culture is about spirituality. That's how obsessed the world is with that thing and not one of those is about the Holy Spirit. It's a totally different dimension. We're talking about God who comes and cannot be received by the world. Strong language, isn't it? It's not something which uh, anyone who names the name Christ has. This is the mark of a genuine believer. And he will be with you, then Jesus says, in the same verse, verse 17, and he will, you will know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Third part of the ministry of the Spirit is a personal possession. That's the new thing. You know, often people talk about salvation as if it's undoing the fall, as if we're getting back to Adam. If only we could be in the garden with Jesus. But you know, that's an inferior spiritual experience to what you have now if you have Jesus Christ. You're doing far better than Adam because he never had the Holy Spirit within him. These apostles never had the Holy Spirit within him, within them. King David, all the great prophets, never had the Holy Spirit within them. The Holy Spirit came upon them. The Holy Spirit illuminated them. He even inspired them, but he didn't live within because they weren't a clean temple. The work of the cross had not happened. But that's the thing we have. We take that for granted. We think somehow we're just contemporary Christians, suburban people who fly the flag for Jesus, we are the new paradigm humanity that God had in mind when he made Adam and now it's come to fruition. All his plans are coming to fruition in you as he takes up residence within you. This is being at just the sort of being that God wanted and he will be with you and in you but you will still be you and he will still be he. This is not a fusion. You don't become a new hybrid God person. Some sort of guru. And that teaching is going around in churches called Christian today. That's not the deal. It's he just wants your temple, your residence, your heart, your consciousness. He wants to live within. And then he says a very strange thing. This next paragraph, we bounce through quickly. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And if you just read that, you might think, oh, well, he's going to tell them here that after the cross he's going to come back. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. He says, I will come to you. Let a in a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me in a sort of a special sense because I live, you will live. In that day... This is a new day that hasn't happened yet for these people. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. That's the new indwelling. 
Whoever has my commandments keeps them. He it is who loves me. But jump down. Judas said, well, Lord, how can you manifest yourself to us? How can you be manifesting yourself to us? But the world won't see it. You know, surely this is the time of publicizing Christ. And Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Uh, and no, verse 23, Jesus answered him. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is not speaking of Jesus' reappearance prior to his ascension. This is speaking because the father didn't suddenly appear then. But it's speaking of this same doctrine. Can you remember the key word? Started with an I. Interpenetration. Here it is that there will be a mutual indwelling, not just Jesus within, but the whole Godhead comes by virtue of the Holy Spirit. That's the remarkable thing about Christianity. So if everyone says to you, as has been said to me, you have Jesus, but you need the Spirit. They're contradicting Jesus. If you have Jesus' Holy Spirit dwelling within you, there is no more that can be had. The whole Godhead has come home to your address. And he resides there. The one God. The Father will love him. We will come to him. We will make our home with him and her. So, I don't know how to summarise that. I've tried using another P word, presencing. Or you could use the Greek word if you want to be fancy, perichoresis. Do you want me to spell it? <laughs> I'll introduce him to him later. But perichoresis is really what we're talking about here. The very presencing of God, the triune God, happens within when you accept the presence of the Spirit that gift that comes from God. But you notice all the way through, and I've been skipping over these verses, there's been a whole lot of verses, verse 21, 23, 24 and 26, where there's such an emphasis on Jesus' teaching. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. What God wants is a holy people, an obedient people. He doesn't want a bunch of hybrid gurus who can do amazing things. He wants obedience. He's the Holy Spirit. That's his fundamental in life. Uh, and verses 23, again, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And uh, so, again, we come down to how this can happen. Uh, 24, whoever does not love me, conversely, does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So even in the communication of Jesus, you're getting the whole mind of the whole God. The Father's communication comes with that. And then, in verse 26, he says, But when the Advocate, the Helper, comes, whom I will send to you, from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. In other words, the faith that we have is P for propositional. The work of the Holy Spirit 
is that we might, as he has created us, psychological, cognitive beings, so he wants to communicate to us meaningfully about his ambitions and his purposes and his desires and his standards. What brings his heart joy? He doesn't want us to walk through life in ignorance. He wants us to be able to now, as the prophets had fulfilled, have the law of God written on our hearts so it would be innate within us to obey him. We would love to obey. And that's the work of the Spirit. Fundamentally, this is why he has called the disciples to write his book. He will teach to you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, there's a form of teaching going around today, which I have to be very explicitly, I find it disturbing. It's actually no different than the mysticism and the Gnosticism of the early church, the craziness of the Anabaptists from whom we come in the Reformation, which suggests that somehow the Word of God is a lower form of spirituality, but if you're really spiritual, you don't need it. You just go to the Spirit and you're led by the Spirit. It drives a wedge between the commandments of Jesus Christ and the Spirit. But do you see how crazy that is? Effectively, we're saying Jesus is promising that when the Spirit comes, he will get hold of these apostles and he will inspire them to distill all that he has said. Why? So he can put it in a big book and send it to a library somewhere. They'll get their PhD and it'll be shoved off in some archive. Is that really it? No, the whole purpose is that we would know consciously the mind of Christ. This is a special book. It's the only book through which the Spirit breathes, through which Jesus teaches through the teaching of the Spirit, so that we would willingly obey and fulfil the central demands of the heart of God. If you don't have the book, he points out, whoever does not love me, does not keep my words. How do you keep the words of Jesus if you never know them? Our respect for the words of Christ goes up when we understand the purpose of the Spirit in the apostles. That unique breed of apostles was to give us these words. We have a propositional, we are the religion of the book. And that's not less spiritual. It's so that we might be more involved in being spiritual. Intellectually, psychologically, cognitively and consciously. We then come down to verse chapter 16. There Jesus says, I didn't say these things from the beginning because I was with you. And this theme of being with but going away starts to get more uh, prominence and Jesus comes back to this issue. It's to your advantage if I go, go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus can't wait to get home, actually. He, sure, he is so happy to be incarnate. But his proper place of abiding is in the fellowship with the Father through the Holy Spirit. That's his normal mode of living. And he can't wait to get back to that. But 
He is not going to leave them, as he says a little later on, as orphans. He has to go away and it's to their advantage. If I go away, he promises, I will send him to you. These are the hymn that he's speaking of is the spirit. They are the, he is the victory spoils of Christ's ascension, as Paul would say. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But I just dwell on that point in verse 7. If I do not go away, the Holy Spirit shall not come to you. The ministry of the time of Christ in his incarnate life is mutually exclusive with the ministry of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you like to use the old language, they are different dispensations. And I wish I could think of a P word. You see there's no P in your text there, but how do you say mutually exclusive with P? If you come up with that, please tell me before you leave today. It'll be an improvement. But uh, here... The Holy Spirit's coming happens post-Christ. When does it happen? When does this gift of the Spirit happen? Pentecost. There is a form of teaching that a large swathe of the church holds to today that is totally contradicted by Jesus Christ. And he's the expert on the Spirit, I remind you. Which says that when Jesus got near the end of his ministry, he gave the Spirit to the apostles. You can read about it in John 20. He breathed on them. Surely that's the first coming of the Spirit. It can't be. Because Jesus says, while I'm here, the Spirit cannot come. He said the same thing in chapter 7. In verse 39. And Luke would be at disagreement with that. It is ironic... <laughs> That if the Spirit came in John 20, as some people preach, then when the Spirit comes in Acts, even though that's the beginning of the church, it's an anticlimax. He's already there. But you see, that's the nature of playing off people's sense that they need more. They might have Christ, they might have the Spirit, but they need a second instalment. The Bible doesn't teach that. It contradicts that. It's so sad. It's like the kid waiting for their dad to come home. And they're looking out for dad to walk down the street at 6pm as the shadows lengthen. And they're waiting for that second dispensation when he's already at home in the tool shed and they could have been enjoying his company. That's the nature of it. It's an anticlimactic view. I'm sorry, folks. Thousands of people might believe it. They might get very excited about it, but Christ doesn't. It's just not what the Bible teaches. If I do not go away, the Holy Spirit shall not come. Nothing could be clearer than that. And then it says, he will convict the world. This is where the advocate for us, the one who is our defence lawyer, to the world is the prosecutor. And his P word there is prosecutorial, whatever that is. <laughs> That's his role, his ministry to the world. You know, often people get really worried about, what about the world that never hears, never knows of Christ? And Jesus has taken care of that too. 
And here he says, if I send him to you, and when he comes, he'll convict the world of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, because they don't believe me. They choose not to believe. That's the archetypical sin. Closing your mind to the light. And the Spirit records that. And he prompts the conscience of the unbelieving. There is no such thing as an atheist that is absent from the work of the Spirit. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You and I would not be here if this prosecutorial work was not done in our life. He convinces the world of sin because I'm not... Righteousness, I go to the Father, you're not going to see a model of righteousness, but the Holy Spirit will bring that model home in their life. They will know what righteousness is. It's a providential work of the Spirit through the world this day. And concerning judgment, because the work is already about, he's already passed judgment on the archetypical sinner, the enemy of the people. The ruler of this world is already judged. It's already been through God's court process. And if the ruler has been judged, then all his followers will follow. They'll have their day in court too. God's already done the hard thing. His followers are the easy thing that will follow. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it, that we have a God who cares so much for the world that he's out there, even in the leaders of ISIS, even in the Pol Pots of this world, even in the Philip Adams of this world, even in the most arrogant atheist in this world, the spirit is that close. And he's bringing an awareness which one day... When they face the judge, he will bring forth, it'll be blown up on the screen of God, in the courtroom of God. At this moment, you had the light, but you chose darkness. Don't tell me you didn't know what you were doing. I was there, in the spirit, as they face the Father. It's a remarkable thing and a wonderful truth that we can take. We don't need to be embarrassed about the world and their ignorance. The Spirit is dealing with that. And by his grace, he gives each of us, at some point in our experience, a deep experience of where we would stand were it not for Christ. And that is the grace of the Spirit, that we can accept Christ because we desperately know we need a Saviour. That's the work of the Spirit to bring us that degree of conviction. The whole world has it and we have responded to that convicting work. And then he says he will convict the world and finally he says in verse 12, I've still many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority. The Spirit does not have an autonomous ministry. The Spirit's ministry is totally geared to Christ's ministry. Whatever he hears, he will speak. The Spirit is totally unoriginal. He will declare to you the things will come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. If there is a plagiarist in the Trinity, it's the Spirit. He doesn't invent his own new facts. And oftentimes I find as a pastor over many years, people thinking that there is new discovery. There are new things that the Spirit is saying to the churches. 
You know what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Listen to Christ. That's what he's saying. I know that's old news, but anything that, com- that competes with that is not of the Spirit. Because his whole role is to shed light on Jesus Christ. The Spirit's goal and purpose, his delight, is not to eclipse Christ, but to shine light on Christ. He wants to hold the spotlight on Jesus. And when you're looking at that spotlight, you can't see the Spirit. I defy anyone to tell me what the Holy Spirit is like. You know what he's like? He's like Jesus Christ, another counsellor. If anyone wants to tell you that there's some new thing or that you can know the Spirit, they're not talking about the triune God that Jesus was and knew. It's totally human. It's a fabrication. And you need to be wise to the fact because there are people out there who'd be glad to take your money and take your joy at the same time. They're everywhere and they're in every age and they don't know Christ. If you knew Christ, you'd respect the spirit of truth. If you knew Christ, you'd bow the knee in holiness and obedience. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it if you had any respect for the word of God who is Jesus Christ. I finish with four tick boxes for you. Four corollaries of what we've been and said this morning. If you are truly a spiritual person, you should be able to put a little tick in each of these four boxes. To be a spiritual person is firstly to have a sensitive conscience. If your own sin troubles you, it's because you're rubbing up against the Holy Spirit. And it troubles him first. That's a mark of a really saved person. What Jesus was about was creating in us a holy people. He wants you to have virtues, not visions. We don't need more Joan of Arcs in this world. We need more average working Christians. That's the dynamite that turns the world. Secondly, we need a Trinitarian intuition. And I'm constantly astounded over the years as a young pastor through to an old pastor, through to a teacher, I'm amazed whenever I come across new Christians how automatically they seem to understand the Trinity. They might not be able to put it in words, but they find themselves praying, loving Jesus, praying to the Father in the Spirit. That's it. They have an awareness of this. Now that is entirely different, and I give you a little bit of homework to do with the Jehovah's Witness. You know, I've banged heads with Jehovah's Witnesses over many years and wasted many Saturday mornings. It doesn't do either of us any good. (laughs) But if you want to cut to the chase with a Jehovah's Witness, I usually argue about the divinity of Christ because they don't accept the divinity of Christ. But if you want to cut to the chase with a Jehovah's Witness, ask them if they want to have a word of prayer. They don't know what you mean. They cannot talk to God as to a friend because they don't have the Spirit. And the Spirit, 
He shines a light on Christ and gives us that sense of intimacy. He builds that love in us where we can feel that we can reach out and touch God as our Father. That's an entirely natural. That's the goal. That's what Christ wants for us. That's what the Father wants for us. That finally we might not have the mind games of Eden, but we might be able to actually reach out and embrace God through the Spirit because of the work of Christ. That's the purpose. All this other stuff, longer legs, better teeth, gold dust. There's another sort of dust. An appetite for the word. An appetite for the word. I'm amazed that the day I became a Christian, you couldn't get my old King James Bible out of my hand. No one told me you need to read the Bible. I loved my Bible. Why? Because Jesus caused it to be written for me. And the Spirit was at work in the writers and the Spirit was at work in me and I had this resonance happening here which is your own personal John 14 experience. We all have that. That's the mark of a true saint. There's something not quite right if you haven't got time to read the Word. Or you should feel a little bit hungry and malnourished (laughs) drained, if you like, spiritually, when you don't read the Word, when you don't come to church to hear it preached, when you don't want to discuss it with friends, that's odd. Because the mark of God's holy work is to resonate your heart with His Word that He caused to be written for you. And finally, you should be obsessed with the Son. You know, it's a little bit strange, this talk of the Spirit. The sort of talk of the Spirit that we have today is not the sort of talk of the great spiritual masters of the ages. Because the whole work of the Spirit is to shine light upon the sun, to say, get a look at his glory. Isn't he wonderful? Look that way, not this way. He is the one who wants us to love Christ. The, the Spirit didn't come along to eclipse Christ and push him off the stage because now I'm here. That's not the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit was to put Christ centre stage. He initiates our love of it. The love of God, the Father, is the initiator. The love of Christ is the operator. And the Spirit's work is the perfecter of the work of the others. That's his joy. That's his love. He doesn't feel threatened. He doesn't feel in any rivalry when we love Jesus. That's exactly how he likes it. We finish. There's no accident that the symbol of Christianity, the sort of Christianity that lasts through the fires, through the ages, the symbol of that Christianity is an empty cross, not a dove and not a tablet of stone. It is the cross that is empty. And that's why that spiritual saint, that globetrotter from Tarsus, put it so well when he said that, if you pray for anything, pray for this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings 
becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. And that's an entirely Trinitarian and spiritual desire. You are normal if that's what your heart is saying to you today. Oh, that I might know Christ. Because that's the work of the Spirit in you. Do you love him enough? It's not because you need another instalment of some other being. It's just that you, you can't get enough of him. Isn't that right? That's the work of the Spirit. You know you're a genuine saint if you just can't get enough of Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we simply want to finish this day by saying that we might know you, the power of your resurrection, that you might unite us with your sufferings and through all those things that lead us to the doorway of heaven, we thank you that we are not orphaned but we are held by the Spirit until that day. So, Lord, be with us and explain these these things to us in ways that are beyond words. We pray this, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Please stand.